So have you gotten the message yet? He's alive. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We have been blessed this morning by the music. I appreciate all of those who have participated in that. It's time for us now to open God's word. If you would take your Bibles, or there is a pew Bible if you do not have one with you in, in front of you there, uh, and turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to look this morning at verses 4 through 8. It's a text that is not familiar maybe for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, but it's where we are. Uh, we are studying a verse-by-verse study of First Peter, and this is where we've come to, and you will be surprised, this is definitely a passage that speaks to the resurrection of Christ. Let me read to you First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a, preci- excuse me, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But... For those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Jesus Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone, Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Hold your hand there in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to show you something. Peter, who is the human author of 1 Peter, had this interaction with Jesus earlier in his ministry, or in the latter part of his ministry, but earlier prior to his resurrection, death and resurrection. This is in first, excuse me, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, verse 13 says, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the the Son of Man is? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, others say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of death, will not overpower it. What is interesting, folks, is that's the first time the word church is mentioned in the Bible, when Jesus says it right there in that scene. And he's using a play on words because he's talking about Peter. His name, Petros, means small stone. And then he moves to upon this rock, Petra, boulder. In other words, upon this boulder-like statement that you have just made, Peter, I will build my church. 
He is not saying to Peter, Peter, I'm going to make you the pope of the church. He's not saying to you, Peter, I'm going to make you the foundation of the church. He's simply saying on this boulder-like statement that you have made, the statement you see there in verse 16, Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. That's his point to Peter. Now go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. You see, Christ is the sole head of the church. He's the builder of the church, and he's the architect of the church. In fact, he says, I'm going to do that. And then in Matthew chapter 21, this is the landowner parable. Look in verse 33. And the religious leaders are the object here of the discussion. The religious leaders of Israel and he gives this parable to, as a rebuke to them. In verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers. And then this landowner goes on a journey so those guys could take care of it for him. When the harvest time approached, he, the landowner, sent his slaves to the vine growers to get the produce from them, the ones he had left in charge. Verse 35, the vine growers, the ones he had left in charge, took the landowner's slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, the landowner sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing. But afterward, the landowner sent his son to them, saying, surely they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And notice what the religious leaders of Israel say. Well, golly, that landowner is going to be really upset. They said he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other, to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus says, you got it right. This is about you guys. Did you ever read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. So what they did, they rejected him and took him away to crucifixion. That's what happened. The religious leaders took Jesus away to crucifixion and killed him, but he rose from the dead, and notice verse 42, he became the chief cornerstone. See that? He became the one who will build this spiritual house called the church. He will be the foundation of it, the chief cornerstone of it. I will build my church and not even death will stop me. Go to Acts chapter four for a moment. This is gonna make more sense. Just hang in there with me. Acts chapter four, verses 
8 through 12. Peter just healed a lame man. In verse 8 of Acts chapter 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, they got, you know, the rulers and elders got mad at Peter for doing this. And uh, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but God raised him from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. You killed him. God raised him from the dead and made him the chief cornerstone of the spiritual house that he's going to build called the church. And there is salvation, verse 12 says, in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. All right, with some of that in, in your background and your thinking, now turn back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, you know the background of 1 Peter. I've told you that in the weeks past, written to suffering believers, believers who are about to face persecution, excuse me, believers who are being minimized in their culture, the way many of you and I feel sometimes in this culture, with persecution towards Christianity. And that's what they were beginning to face. And Peter uses this same imagery here. Christ is the rock on which the church is built, and he's going to show his readers in this that they are part of that construction plan. Listen, is Christianity worth it? That's what they got to be asking themselves. Is it worth it? Is what I'm going through worth it? To not be respected and to not be, uh, to be looked down upon because I claim Christ and look to Christ and believe in Christ. And I'm about to face this, we're about to face this incredible persecution from Nero. Is it worth it? It's going to show them the church is God's building project. I want to show you that you're going to see the importance of the church here. It's the work of his son. He's the foundation of it. He, he was put to death. He rose again to be the foundation of his church. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, you are the temple of God. Plural, you, all of you, you are the temple of God. And that the spirit of God dwells in you. It's speaking to me individually. Yes, I'm a temple, but also to us collectively, we are the temple of God. And so we make up the church, and we're referred to in verse 5. You're in 1 Peter, are we still in 1 Peter? Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. See that, you're living stones. You're living stones. It refers to you. Christ is the living stone. You're the living stone. We're cemented to the living stone. We're cemented to Christ, and we're cemented to each other in this spiritual house that he's building called the church. We're committed to worshiping and serving together, and we're cemented to one another, and we're to live with each other in this community and and then Paul is going to, what Peter, excuse me, what Peter's going to do now, and as we move through this passage, he's going to contrast the, the privileges of those who believe in, in, in this message and the, and the penalty for those who do not believe. 
The privileges of those who do believe are they are part of God's house. And the penalty for those who do not believe is hell, is doom. So, we see first those who do receive Christ. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And coming to him, it's, go back to verse 3, you tasted. <laughs> you tasted. This is, if you have tasted it and you are those who are coming to him, not necessarily the, the initial salvation, but you're those who are continually coming to him. Those who are continually drawing near to him, speaking to believers you're those who are continually coming to him. You're drawing near, as Hebrews uses that term over and over again, drawing near to the throne of grace, drawing near to God. We are those who are drawing near. And, and this is just a good reminder that it's not by coming to church that we are joined to Christ. Don't think just because you walk in the door here, you're joined to Christ. That does not join you to Christ. Coming to church doesn't join you to Christ. Jo being joined to Christ is what joins you to the church. You come to Christ and you're joined to the church. It's not a commitment to a church that joins you to Christ. That doesn't work. You must be joined to Christ to be part of his church, to be part of his spiritual house on which he is the foundation. And he uses the term living stone because he was, he was dead and now he's alive. And that's so important. You don't think of a stone as being alive. You think of stone dead. That's what you think of. This is alive. A stone that's alive. It's the metaphor that's being used. And he gives spiritual life to those who trust him. John 11 says, I am the resurrection and the life who believes in me will live. But in spite of that, in spite of that truth that he taught, you want life, I'm the, I have the words of life. In spite of all those things he said about him having life and being the life, people rejected him. You see that in verse four as well. Rejected means this. Rejected means you examine something you look it over, you consider it, and you decide it's worthless. That's rejection. They rejected it. They rejected the living stone. That's mainly speaking of the religious leaders. He, he doesn't go to our seminary. He is not part of our group. He does not fit the, the, what we think a Messiah should be. They, they listen to him, and in the face of so many miraculous events, they reject him after examining him for a period of time. No, this isn't the kind of Messiah we want. We want, uh, we want a military Messiah. We want somebody that'll get rid of Romans for us. We don't want somebody like this that comes humbly into town and then goes and dies on a cross. Oh my goodness, what kind of Messiah does that? We don't want him. And they rejected him. They rejected him and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. And then you see the contrast here. That was their opinion. And their opinion flies right in the face of God's opinion of him. You see that in verse 4. He is choice and precious in the sight of God. 
That is God's opinion of Jesus. Contrary to what their opinion might have been, this is his opinion. Contrary to what your opinion of Jesus might be today, this is God's opinion of Jesus. Choice and precious in the sight of God. The world today rejects Jesus just like they rejected Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't fit. They don't, they, don't, they, don't, you know, they don't, they like his words and some of the things he taught, but they do really not like it when he talks about sin and hell and being separated from a holy God. When he speaks words of judgment on sin and hell, they don't like that. They want a Jesus of their own making. They reject the Jesus the Jesus that God sent into the world. Peter says men reject him. God fully approves of him. He's no ordinary stone. He's specifically selected by God to be the redeemer of mankind. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. There is no other message but the gospel message that can redeem humanity. It's the only hope there is for the world. God has not sent a bunch of messages. God has not sent a bunch of ways. He's only sent one way, one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Isaiah 42.1 says this, God says of Jesus, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. See, the question is, does your soul delight in Jesus this morning? What is it delighting in? Think about that. What is it craving? As we talked about last time we were in Peter, what is, what is it craving today that's not God in his word? What is it worshiping that's not God in his word in Christ? What is it worshiping? Ask yourself, God is satisfied with Jesus. Am I satisfied with Jesus? Or am I trying to find satisfaction in something else? something that's temporary, something that's not fulfilling in the long run, some idol. Go to verse 5. Now he turns to you. He turns to the believers reading this letter, Peter's audience, original audience. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is a living stone, Peter says, but he also describes me and you, and we are living stones as well. When we were born again, get this, when we were born again, Christ imparted his nature to us. We are partakers of the divine nature. If you're a believer, he lives in you. He lives in you. He changes you. He transforms you. He regenerates you. You become a living stone. He takes you out of the pit and gives you life. And just like he is a living stone, every believer is a living stone. Because I live, you also live, Jesus says in John 14. And so Peter, Peter compares the church to a building here in this verse. You see that, being built up as a spiritual house. The church is a building, and so each one of you is a stone in that building. You're a brick in the building. Get it? 
He's building a building. He's using this metaphor. And if you're a believer in Christ, he puts another brick. Every time a person comes to Christ, every time a person repents and believes, he puts another brick in the building. (laughs) You're cemented together, like it or not. And you're cemented to Christ. It's the body metaphor, right? That Paul Paul uses, like a human body. All the parts make up that body. All the bricks, all the stones make up that spiritual house that he's building. Another stone gets quarried out of the pit every time someone comes to Christ. And by grace gets cemented into the church. It's just a good reminder that we don't, we don't live isolated from each other. We don't. We do not live isolated from each other. We just don't. <laughs> One commentator said, it's not just a bunch of stones laying out in a field. We can't be isolated from one another. That's not how he designed it. And I just even, I get concerned sometimes with us having live stream. I don't want live stream to become your church. If you're listening by live stream, this isn't a rebuke of you. If some of you are there because you need to be home and you can't be here, and I understand that. But just saying, I, you can't, that can't be it. You can't be isolated from the body of Christ. If you're a stone that's been cemented, you need to be together. We just need to be together. He wants us to be brought together and, and to live together as his house. The household of God is the term he uses in, in um, Hebrews. It's a household of God. And see, this is not the church. The church was never meant, as uh, one pastor I heard say, church was never meant to be steel and stucco and stained glass. It's, it's you and me. We are the church. God dwells in us, not some ornate sanctuary. They don't have churches anymore, buildings anymore in some parts of Ukraine. People are gathering on the streets to worship God. They don't need a building because they are the church. You you can have a tree in in Africa like I saw. We listened to uh, from the martyrs ministry and uh, just worshiping under a tree. I, I mean, I like having mortar and brick and stained glass. Okay, that's nice. There's some churches that have to tear down their stuff every week and set it back up every Sunday. There's churches, some churches have started that way in this town and they're like that and they have that constant reminder that we don't, we don't have a building. I know they want to have a building, <laughs> but the point is they know that's not the building. The building is not the church. And see, Peter is familiar with the tabernacle and the temple. That's kind of the language that's being used here. You see that? The, the temple, you recall, was, was the dwelling place of God. You had the tabernacle within the temple. You had the holy, of holy, the holy place and the holy of holies, and sacrifices were brought in to that, pla- to that temple and, to, to worship God because God dwelt in that temple. His Shekinah glory dwelt in the holy of holies. And that was... No believer could ever uh, approach God but by going to that temple and going through a priest with a sacrifice. It's holy priesthood. He says in verse 
We're still in verse 5, it's holy priesthood. Uh, he says, you and I are like priests. He, he calls us priests. He, he says the priest in the Old Testament was the one who was the one who you would bring the sacrifice to, and you, had, you couldn't go directly, so you'd bring the sacrifice to the priest, and he would perform all the ritual and all that was necessary so that access to God could be possible. And the high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies, and they had to put a bell, listen, listen, they had to put a bell in the hem of his garment and tie a rope around his leg. And as long as they heard the bell ringing inside the Holy of Holies, which nobody could go but him, and he had to first take a sacrifice for his own sin, and as long as they heard that bell still ringing inside the Holy of Holies, they knew he was still alive and God hadn't killed him because he did something wrong or something. And if they did stop hearing the bell, guess what? They'd have to drag him out by the rope because you couldn't have direct access to God in the Old, Old Testament. It had to be through a sacrifice. It had to be through one of the tribe of Levi who was in the, in the line of Aaron. It was a priest. And here, here Peter is saying, we're priests. We're priests. He's saying that we're priests, that he's going to say it again in verse 9 of chapter 2, the royal priesthood. He's saying that this is the doctrine of the priesthood of believers. He's saying that now you, as a believer in Christ and part of the spiritual house that I am building, that he is building, you are priest, meaning that you have access to God. You have access to God anytime you want to go into the presence of God. And you're not going there on your own merit. You're not going there because you deserve to be there. You are going there because of the blood of Christ, that you placed your faith in what Christ did and his blood was shed. He's made it possible by his death to bring you to God. By faith in what he did on the cross and believing that he is the sacrifice that you need to take away your sin because your sin gets in the way of you and God, a holy God. And believing that Christ is the one that paid the price and the penalty that you deserve. You can go into the presence of God. That's what a priest is. A New Testament priest. That's what we are. Did you think of yourself that way when you came here today? Or did you think I was your priest? What do you think the elders are your priest? We're not. You're a priest. You're a priest because you have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can go directly into his presence. You don't need me to go into his presence. In, in Roman Catholicism, there was a, uh, only one person had the Bible for a long time. Only one person had the Bible. That would be the, the priest or the leaders of the church. And they would go, to, you would go to Mass and you would listen to them read the Bible. And he's the only guy that had it. And then they would go home and they didn't have a Bible all week. They didn't have a Bible. And they have to wait till the next week to go back to hear him read from it again. And the Reformers came along and they said, wait a second, we're priests. We can all read this book. And that's why they wanted to get it put in the language of the common people. And many of them died doing that because they say we're priests. We believe that all believers, we no longer need the Old Testament priesthood. That's obsolete. 
We are now, now, as believers, we are priests. We've been robed in his righteousness, cleansed by our faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I can pray directly. In fact, we're called that in Revelation chapter one. He says this, and he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And we're required as priests to live pure lives, be holy. He said that. We've seen that earlier. We lived, priests were required to do that. That's required of us. We're to live holy lives. And, and we're to serve. You didn't have to bring a lamb in here today. You didn't have to bring an animal in here today. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. I wouldn't know how to do it for one thing. It's a bloody job. They were butchers. They were basically butchers. All our sins have been atoned for in Christ as Christians. All those Old Testament pictures of sacrifices were fulfilled in Christ. But we do offer sacrifices. You see that in verse 5, don't you? We are to offer sacrifices. What are those sacrifices we're to offer? Let me just read some to you. Let me just read some of these to you. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. There you go. There's your sacrifice. Presenting your bodies as living and holy sacrifices. He's just got through 11 chapters of the gospel, and now he says, therefore you present your bodies. The presentation of your body, the surrendering of your body. Think about what all of that means. That means your, your hand, hands, what your hands do, where your feet take you, what you think with your minds, what you do with all your appetites, what you do with your sexual desire, what you do with all of those things are to be sacrifices of worship to God as a priest. As a believer priest, I am to present my body. I don't bring a lamb. I don't bring a bird. I don't bring a pigeon. I bring my own body, which is your spiritual service of worship. Hebrews 13, 15 says this. Here's another one. We are to sing praises to God like we've been doing this morning. Just sing in response to what he has done. Verse 15 says this, Through him let us continually offer up a praise, excuse me, a sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of our lips. Giving thanks to his name. You're a priest and you have a job to sacrifice, to do sacrifices just like the Old Testament, only it looks a lot different this time around. You are to Present your bodies, and you are to sing songs of thankfulness to God for what he has done. Verse 16 in Hebrews chapter 13 says this, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. When I share, when I do good things for other people, when I I treat others the way I want to be treated, when I love my enemies, when I love my brother, other, other believers. Do not neglect doing good and sharing for such sacrifices God is pleased. 
The fourth one I would mention is from Romans chapter 15. This is Paul. Paul is talking about the evangelism he's doing to the Gentiles. And he says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, talking about himself, ministering as a priest the gospel of God. Evangelism is ministering as a priest. Sharing the gospel is a ministry for a priest. We are priests. So that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. That sacrificial offering, that offering that I make to God of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So as a priest, I have things that I need to do. And the fifth one would be prayer and supplications. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it says the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, before the throne, and he had this incense pictured there. And that incense, he says, before the throne of God is the prayers of the saints. Now, you, you want to know what to do? You're a priest, you're a believer priest, you have access into the presence of God. You can cry out to him in any moment. You can confess your sins to him. You can experience forgiveness from him directly. He just calls you to walk in the works that he has prepared beforehand for you to give evidence that you belong to him. He's not telling you to do that in your own power. Look at the rest of the verse. Look at the rest of the verse. Through Jesus Christ. Sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In fact, you know, when you do, work, you know, when you do things in your own strength and your own power and for your own glory... You give money because you just want to be seen by others or you just want to be praised by others or you serve because you just want accolades from others. You do everything because it's about you and your own glory. You know what that's called in the Bible? Wood, hay, and stubble. But acceptable sacrifices are those done through the Lord Jesus Christ. When I, I want to glorify him, I'm a priest. I have been saved by his grace and I want to bring glory to him. I want to present my body as a living sacrifice. I want to share with others. I want to love others. I want to share the gospel. I want to pray. I want to submit my all to him. Then in the next three verses, are you still in 1 Peter chapter 4? The next three verses, beginning in verse 6. He goes to the Old Testament to support this whole living stone metaphor. The living stone metaphor that he's been using here. That Christ is the living stone and we're living stones and, and we are connected to Christ and we are connected to each other. That whole metaphor, he's, he's building the house, he's building the church. He says in verse six, for this is contained in scripture, behold I lay in Zion a choice stone a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's what verse six says. That's an Old Testament quote. So he's saying God placed his son as a precious and choice cornerstone. In ancient times, when they were building a building, they would put a cornerstone at the building, at the corner, the most important stone of the whole building. If there's gonna be symmetrical, if it's gonna be anything about that building that stands up later, it better be a good cornerstone. It better be right angle cornerstone because everything that is laid after that will be measured by that stone. So this is very important. Christ is the cornerstone. Everything in this building, this spiritual house that he's building is measured by him. 
The question is, does he, not, does he line up to you? The question is, do you line up to him? Christ is not on trial for us to evaluate whether we're going to reject him or not. He has he already been evaluated. He is precious in God's sight. And the question is, do you line up to him? He has first place in the church. The most important part of the whole church, the foundation of the church. He's the one that holds it up. That's why I tell you folks, I don't care how bad things get, the church will never die. The church will never, ever die. I don't care how people, how unpopular it gets in people's eyes and how much their statistics say that, you know, less and less people are going to church here and there and this church is not longer in existence or that. That doesn't matter. It will never die. God's true believers are there and they're part of the spiritual house and they are cemented to him and cemented to each other and they're, God, they're, they're that way for eternity. So we're not intimidated by polls that say the church is losing this ground or that ground. The church is losing nothing. There's some churches that do need to close their doors. There are some churches that do need to go out of existence because they just call themselves churches, but they preach no true gospel. They do not uphold the living stone and and call others to be living stones, to be joined to him and line up with him as the chief cornerstone and submit your life to him as the chief cornerstone, not living for yourself, but living for him and for his glory, lining up with him and his word. So if a building is going to be stable, the cornerstone matters. And you see, he says then in verse 6, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Will not be disappointed. Is it worth it? Hey, you'll never be disappointed. Is it worth it to be a Christian? That's what these persecuted believers are asking. This is what many people are asking when they face persecution. Is it really worth it? He says you will never be disappointed. You will never, you will never be let down. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. (laughs) He will always be there. Everything else passes away. But he does not. You are building your life on something that will last, not on something that's going to fall apart. And when you stand before judgment one day, you will not be ashamed. You will not be ashamed because you know you belong to him. It's secure. You can never be separated from him. This precious value, verse 7 says, then is for you who believe. I get it. We believe in a God we cannot see, and that's strange to the world. I believe in a Jesus I cannot see, and that's strange to the world. But I want to tell you something. This belief that I have and that you have is not something that you just muster up yourself. If it was something that you just mustered up yourself... It'd be gone tomorrow. True evidence that you've got saving faith is that it's a faith that endures because God is the one that sustains it. He's the one that keeps it going on your worst days. He's the one that keeps it, He's the one that gives it to you, and He is the one that keeps it going. He is the one that perseveres you so that you might persevere. I know the source of that faith. True faith is from God, true faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. All I know is I was once spiritually dead. I was a dead stone. 
in the pit. And he brought me to life. That should be your testimony. If you're a Christian, that's your testimony. I was in the miry clay, and you brought me out. Listen to the way one commentator said this. I like this. Like cold, hard stones lying deep down in the darkness underground, in need of being quarried and shaped before we could be of any use to God. However, once coming to Christ in repentance and faith, we have been born again and made living stones, put in the family of God, the house of God, the family of God, the church of God, partakers of the divine nature. That should be the testimony of every believer in this room. If you're a believer, that's your testimony. And that's a privilege. That's a privilege to those who receive and trust in Christ. And I wish I could end the sermon here this morning. I really do, but there's another verse. There's another verse. Verse 7b. Peter goes on to describe those who reject Christ. And I have to say this this morning. Because it doesn't end well for those who do not believe. They are condemned. They face doom. That's the word that's used here. They face doom. You see that at the end of verse 8. For, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. They don't want to align their lives with Christ. They don't want to, you know, I like the words that Jesus says. That's liberal theology, by the way. I like the things he says and want to kind of follow some of his teachings. That's liberal theology. But I don't like this Jesus who tells me to take up my cross and deny myself and follow him. I don't like his hard words. I like his soft words. I don't like his hard words. They don't want to align themselves with the cornerstone. You know what happens? They trip over it. You know why they trip over it? Because they don't want to believe it. They disbelieve it. This happened in the history of Israel. We know that. Jesus came and presented himself as a Messiah, and they said, no way. We will not have this man to reign over us. He is not what we had in mind. And so they crucified him. Verse 80 says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He was offensive. He's offensive. He he was offensive. It's foolishness to the Gentiles, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, You know, a crucifixion, that's that's foolishness. Jesus dying on a cross, that's foolishness, the Gentiles would say. But it was really offensive to the Jews because cursed is he who hangs on a tree. What is our Messiah doing hanging on a tree? And they stumbled over it. They missed it. That before he could come and be their king, he had to come and be their savior. I did not come to conquer Romans, he said. I came to save you from your sin. I will come again and bring that promised kingdom. And so they stumbled. They would not submit to him. They would not believe in him. Jesus commands everybody to repent and believe. They said no. No. That's a command. Repent and believe the gospel. That's to you here this morning. Repent and believe the gospel. Put your trust and faith not in yourselves, but in Christ, in Christ alone, as we sang earlier. There's only two responses to Jesus Christ. He is the crux of all humanity. He's right there. You either are for him or you're against him. There is no middle ground with Jesus. 
You either receive him or you reject him. To receive him is to be a living stone like he's the living stone and to be built and be a, be a part of that spiritual house that he's building called his church or to face eternal doom and separation from God forever. You have heard the parable, I don't need to turn there, in Matthew chapter seven. The wise man built his house upon, excuse me, the foolish man, the wise man, I wanna get it right, get in order. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and when the storms came, that house stood. That's the rock, that's the rock. He who hears these words of mine and does them, Jesus says in that parable, is like that wise man who built his house upon a firm foundation and when those winds of judgment came, he escaped the wrath of God. That house stood. The foolish man, that parable says, is the man who builds his house upon the sand, upon some new philosophy that's out there, some new idea that's out there some man-made system of thinking that's out there, some positive approach to life that's out there, the sinking sand, the shifting sands of humanity, builds his life on those sands. When the storms came, that would not hold him up. Would not hold him up. And he was destroyed. That was his doom. (laughs) What is your life built on this morning? What is it built on? The cornerstone, the firm foundation, the solid rock, or is it built on something that's not gonna hold up? Jesus said, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will Never die. Do you believe this, he says. Jesus said those words. Do you believe this? And that's my question. I leave with you today as we end this time together. Do you believe this? Almighty God, we thank you. We could be in this place today. We thank you, God, that we could come and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord We thank you, God, that we could come and lift up these songs of praise and adoration to what you have done and giving thanks and this sacrificing that we can do as priests. We thank you, God, that we could come and hear these words from Peter, be reminded that though he was rejected, He is the living stone. He is the cornerstone of this house of God, this group of people here who know you and love you and believe in you. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning, God, that does not know you, that they would repent and believe the gospel. They would repent and put their faith and trust in Christ and stop trusting in themselves and their own ideas and leaning on their own understanding and going the way that seems right to themselves and rather the way that you have said is right. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me. We lift that message up this morning, Lord, and call all men to repent and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.